Welcome to the Property Nomads podcast and today we're going to be learning about social housing. We're going to be learning about changes to the right to buy scheme uh, that are coming up. Uh, it's in a white paper uh, at the time of recording. And in order to talk us through uh, the elements of that white paper and also the history of social housing and right to buy, but we have a social housing expert joining us. Uh, Neil Goodrich, uh, thank you for your time and I have to say your Twitter bio makes me laugh every time I read it, uh, but it sums up everything in a nutshell. So I'm just going to go with that. Uh, it says, uh, Neil Goodrich, uh, I, I lift weights and tweet things. Housing professional, feminist, relapsed, egg chaser, lapsed blogger, former chair of CIH Futures. That is a chartered institute of housing. All my views, my own blah, blah. Uh, I quite like that. So uh, Neil, uh, welcome to the Property Nomads podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So really looking forward to digging into this because I'm not going to profess that I'm a social housing guru. My knowledge on social housing is minimal. You're the right man to speak to. Uh, Probably the the best place to start, though, before we go into that, is give us a little bit more information uh, about yourself because obviously you're a former chair of the Chartered Institute of Housing. But a little bit about yourself and let's go then into the history of social housing in the UK. Yeah, sure. So um, studied and or worked in housing, specifically in social housing for over a decade. As you mentioned, I was a former chair of CIH Futures, which is a special interest board, uh, part of the, the Chartered Institute of Housing, uh, with a particular remit to encourage, engage, otherwise draw in um, younger housing professionals into the sector. Um, one of the kind of standard jokes for anyone who works in housing is, I just fell into it. It's not something that you'll t- typically find someone waking up uh, just on their way to primary school and being like, I'm going to be a housing professional. So certainly not working for a housing association or for a local authority in their housing team. So uh, our, our main aim there was to try and have it as a, a career of choice. There's a fantastic range of uh, work streams you can operate in from income to development to customer engagement to community investment the, the list goes on all kind of buzz terms but you can be uh, the butcher the baker the candlestick maker and, and work within housing in such a broad area so yeah that's kind of a very brief history with me um i also kind of refer to myself as a loud mouth with a twitter account um very, very vocal <laughs> on housing policy items particularly because in the last two decades or so it, it's been uh, a kind of a scenario of benign neglect or just outright hostility from central government. So it's a, never a dull space, um, but can be quite frustrating um, if you have a particular view on how you think the different elements of our housing system should work. Perfectly understandable. I think uh, most people, uh, as most of the listenership are, are UK based, I'm sure we're um, most of us at some point have been frustrated with the, you know, what seems to be unlimitless bureaucracy, uh, no matter what sector. Uh, we're talking yeah. about uh, as, as a, a railway enthusiast myself at the time of recording we're just going into that week of strikes which uh, yeah it's not an episode about that but uh, anyway moving swiftly on um social housing if you mention social housing to people uh that possibly can give quite a negative stigma rightly or wrongly so can you just give us a little bit of a history into social housing uh, what is it and, and how did it start yeah, sure. So um, 
housing in the UK can be broadly split into three sectors, which is the home ownership sector, the private rented sector, and then the social housing sector. Um, social housing has gone through a substantial amount of change over the past four decades or so. So if we look back to 1981 as kind of a benchmark year, as kind of the high watermark for um, stock uh, within very specifically England here, because housing is a devolved matter. So the Scottish Parliament, um, the Welsh Parliament, and the Northern Irish Assembly retain uh, policy jurisdiction on housing. But for, for England, if you look back in 1981, about 26 to 27% of all housing units were in the UK belonged in the social housing sector. That has fallen considerably to around 16%, if not a little bit lower. In, in kind of pure stock terms, you're looking at about 4.2 million units are, are now social housing uh, units within, the, within England. Um, so it gives you an idea just as the level that we are today and kind of the journey that we've been on since 1981. Um, in terms of a more general history, uh, probably the biggest initial intervention was actually post-World War I. Um, you had a government that was quite concerned at growing left-wing sentiment on the continent. You'd seen the Bolshevik re revolution over in Russia. And there were genuine concerns in, in the UK that something akin to that might happen. Um, but also you'd had just mass destruction on the continent and a significant uprooting of people's lives um, and families. The, the number of war dead was quite considerable and the, the people who came back were changed for, for one reason or another, mentally or physically. And at the time, the private rented sector was quite significant in the UK, but of incredibly poor quality. So uh, for reasons various, the, the government of the day decided to uh, undergo a, a Homes Fit for Her Heroes programme. So your first kind of mass build of uh, central government or local government owned units delivered across the UK uh, in an attempt to clear some of the slums that people were living in and to provide, as it said, homes fit for people coming back from the war. The overall numbers weren't uh, as impressive as they otherwise could have been, but it was the first real intervention from central government to deliver en masse what is now known as council housing. This kind of ebbed and flowed until the end of the Second World War, at which point, again, you had a real urgency and focus because a lot of the damage had moved from just being on the continent into to the UK itself. I mean, I live not too far from Coventry, and that was just flattened. Um, by the Germans in World War II. So you had significant opportunity, uh, for want of a better word, to redevelop and reorganise uh, the housing system within the UK. Um, you also had a much more sympathetic uh, set of governments, both on a Conservative and a Labour side, uh, to develop council housing en masse. And you saw really from the post-war period to probably the early, early to mid-70s, a massive boom in housing, we were hitting at one point 300 to 400,000 units per year um, being built, not all in the, the, the council sector, but predominantly so. Um, and we've never hit those levels since um, for reasons we'll come uh, up to later on. We then get to the late 1970s. And again, you'll see a commonality here, a large period of strife. Um, we had the oil price shocks. We had a major change, the collapse of the Callaghan government. Margaret Thatcher comes into power in 1970 and quite quickly looks to drive through what she terms the, a property-owning democracy, um, which you know, has its merits and certainly has its place. Uh, the net effect was from the 90, early 1980s to current day, you see a significant change in the tenure landscape of the UK. So uh, 
right to buy was introduced early in the 1980s. There were a number of different acts, I think 1983 Housing Act and the 1998 Housing Act were, were quite pertinent to this. But you had a, a number of systemic changes to encourage people into home ownership, to assist them into home ownership, but to also make private renting uh, more flexible, uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, and to residualize the social housing stock. Um, so you had right to buy introduced and you saw quite significant chunks of properties exit the sector as people took up the opportunity to purchase the home at a significant discount. At the same time of this discount being applied, local authorities began to feel the uh, pincer movement from the Treasury, where they would actually take part of the receipts from right to buy and withhold them so local authority couldn't spend. And more stringent rules came in for local authorities to borrow to build, as well as how they could use the revenue that they were generating from their stock. So you're seeing a real pressure point on councils to effectively make it very difficult for them to replace the stock and to build and to maintain themselves as social housing providers uh, for, for reasons various, one political, one ideological, but actually there were some genuine concerns around accountability, responsibility and transparency on uh, municipally held stock, particularly in some of the real big areas, I think here of Birmingham and actually Glasgow as well, where you kind of instances basically born well. Councillors using the system to benefit their friends and their family in certain instances and issues of disrepair being quite significant. Whilst there was a massive boom in housing between the, the post-World War II to 1970s period, a lot of it was with experimental technology and a lot of it wasn't properly maintained and well held. Indeed, before he was making some quite interesting and different documentaries, such as The Power of Nightmares, Adam, one of Adam Curtis's first real uh, documentaries was on the great um, social housing scandal showing that you're having these properties built and they were literally stuffing rubble and newspaper into what should have been concrete uh, as part of the these quickly thrown up builds. We had a, a lot of use of prefabs, which was first gen technology that just didn't stand the test of time. So yes, a lot of good housing got built, but a lot of dross there as well, because it was effectively a numbers game for a number of years. So you have all these kind of tipping points pushing the state potentially away from having local authority-owned housing. Um, another element was that not all local authorities were happy with this state of play and they didn't particularly want to lose their housing stock. They were seeing it getting leached out via right to buy and unable to replace. So they underwent uh, what became known as large-scale voluntary transfers, which is effectively where you would have the stock bought off the local authority, transferred over into a charitable organisation, aka a housing association, who would then manage, own and run and develop new stock within that local authority area. Uh, this actually became encouraged by central government because it, it kind of fitted in with their worldview, which is the state isn't shouldn't be the main provider of housing. And actually where you do need some residual housing for those of need, it would be better to have a charitable organisation uh, run it than the state. There's also the added, added benefit that due to an accounting quirk, any of the historic debt assigned to those units just kind of got wiped off. Um, oh, OK, yeah. So there, there are a number of good pointers there. Until the ONS changed its mind and gave George Osborne a massive headache back in the 
the 2010s, but you know, we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment. So that's kind of broadly the direction of travel. So if you kind of imagine a, a graph where you have uh, municipally owned housing kind of going like that and then like that, at the same time, we'll have another line of uh, housing association owned stock going like this and then going like that. And we have this flip now kind of occurred early to early 2000s to the 2010s where stock owned by housing associations now is greater than stock owned by local authorities. And actually, when a lot of people say they live in a council house, they probably don't. They probably live in a housing association property. And that trend will more or less continue until the point at which we are at an incredibly residualized state from local authority owned stock. So that's a very broad picture. Very quickly, uh, the history of housing associations is just as important. Um, you can split this broadly into three to four categories. So the initial one is late era Victorian philanthropic organisations. Um, so Peabody, the Guinness Trust, uh, Octavia Hill, rich Victorians who wanted to do social good as part of religious and or other uh, motivations, built housing for the deserving poor. That's a very important concept because it wasn't necessarily those who had the most need. It was those who had need and fitted the criteria on which they decided you should live there. So Octavia Hill, for example, was quite famous for booting out people who drank alcohol or had an issue with alcohol from her properties and had no compunction in just clearing them out. Um, so that was the first stage. You then have uh, a seminal documentary, well, not documentary, but a movie that depicted some of the issues of living in the private rented sector in the 1960s called Cathy Come Home. This was the birth of shelter. It was the birth of crisis, but it also became the birth of the first wave of what we now referred to in the sector as traditional housing associations. So small scale, um, owned a few number of units, but with a real purpose to by hook or crook, increase the amount of social housing in a particular area, sometimes with a very specific focus um, as a result of, of that, uh, that movie. Um, we then move into what I've just described earlier as the LSVT era, where councils were selling off their stock en masse to uh, these new organisations. We then, in the late 1990s, uh, 2000s through to Monday, have another period where you're seeing significant mergers between housing associations. You would have probably seen in the news recently the likes of Clarion being on, particularly ITV with Daniel Hewitt, who's done a big expose into their failing repairs service and kind of the appalling conditions a number of individuals had to face. Um, they are not the norm in terms of the size of housing associations. So you have circa 13 to 400 registered providers which is the new terminology for housing associations. It's a standard joke in the sector that a HA is also an RSL, but it's an RP, but most people know it as a council. So registered social landlord, registered provider, housing association, they all mean the same thing. Um, but actually, if you look at it from stockwise, 82% of housing associations in England own less than 1,000 units. 247 housing associations own 95% of the stock. So you have a real concentration of stock in a small number of organisations, which is ironically enough, given the some of the initial pushes away from local authority owned housing in terms of repairs, maintenance, accountability, transparency. Um, 
they're all coming back round. It's just a different beast that's that's kind of initiating them. I'm not saying there's similar levels of, of alleged corruption, but certainly there are significant problems with some of the larger housing associations at this point in time. But that is a very brief, well, not so brief, potted history of both social housing and housing associations. Um, and you can probably tell why my, my wife rolls her eyes at me after I start talking about it, because you try and explain one little thing, you kind of have to draw back, and then you're 20 minutes into a conversation. But that's where we are. I completely understand uh, where... <laughs> I completely understand once you get into the nooks and crannies of something, if, if the other person's not finding the subject, you know, I, I understand. I understand. <laughs> I, I made a, a quick note here that uh, says that oh, I'm guessing that Octavia Hill didn't have any issues with Section 21s back in the day. You just pick them up and uh, lock them out. Things were a little bit easier back, yeah. back in the day. Um, and then the other side note I, I've got, it's interesting. And again, this is probably not this podcast episode to go into to go into that but I do find it interesting being on the, um, the committee of a, a, a local landlords association it always seems to be that you know and I appreciate there are road landlords that operate out there and you know that they shouldn't etc etc so I get that but it's, it does seem funny that the council are very quick to various councils are very quick to uh, issue fines and a big slap on the wrist for you know bad landlords who are actually if you look at some of their own stock like, eh, you're not even meeting your own regulations, but funny enough, they don't find themselves uh, over that. No. That's probably for a different episode. I, I will not get on my political high horse. Um, thank you for giving an overview. Uh, I'm sure people are listening, uh, are finding this fascinating, and I'm sure we could go on for hours at the in-depth history. Uh, but moving on to, to, to Right to Buy, for those that might not be aware what it is, can you just explain what Right to Buy is? Uh, if, if you can then say how it's evolved and then go into the white paper uh, that's, that's currently uh, around and about and how that can impact the sector. Yeah, sure. So it's mentioned earlier, right to buy is effectively a significant discount on the uh, market value of a council house and or housing association property. So you as a tenant would have need to have lived there for a certain amount of time. Um, there are certain criteria that you need to adhere to, typically around arrears or any antisocial behaviour. But effectively, if we take it from very simple sums, because I'm a simple man and long words bother me, but if you have a house that's worth £100,000, using right to buy, you can probably buy it for about £30,000. Um, where things get complicated and where the, white, uh, the kind of new announcements are, are kind of coming through and where they're going to hit some sticking uh, points is on the nature of the ownership of the property. So where the property is owned by a local authority, government has much more flexibility in terms of dictating the terms of sale and what we do with that asset, because um, it's the public good owned by um, you know, local authorities who are beholden to central government, although they might not always uh, admit that. Housing associations are private entities. They are charitable organisations with standing orders that specifically require them to extract maximum value from their assets. In layman's terms, you can apply the same discount to a housing association property, but you have to give that difference back. So whereas under right to buy for councils, the Treasury, one, didn't have to give them any money between the difference of the, the market value and the actual sale, but they were also quite sneaky in drawing stuff back for uh, any historic debt that related to that local authority. Um, for housing associations, the Treasury would need to fund that difference. 
And this is where having a prime minister who's quick at headline grabbing, not necessarily keen on the detail of policies, kind of comes unstuck a little bit. Because Right to Life Housing Associations has actually gone through quite a significant trial. In 2018, there was an agreement reached between the government of the day, slightly before then, that's when the, the, the pilot went live. Um, so under Cameron, when he was still around, remember him as a prime minister, uh, between Cameron's government and the National Housing Federation, which is the representative body for housing associations in, uh, in the UK, specifically England. Um, there is an agreement to deliver what they refer to as voluntary right to buy. So there is an acceptance that government would either need to push through highly controversial legislation and force purchase of these units owned by private entities, which, as you imagine, would set alarm bells ringing through a whole host of sectors, or they could work together to a common good to ensure that, one, housing associations weren't out of pocket, two, that the complexities related to housing associations owning stock were accounted for. So, again, unlike local authority stock, housing association stock quite often comes through from what is known as Section 106 agreement. So for those who are unsure, developer wants to build 50 units in a field near a village. Local planning authority says, that's fine, but I want a set percentage of those to be for social rent and or shared ownership. You've got to build an access road, by the way, our school crumbling, so you can build one of those as well. And then there's a negotiation that goes ahead between the two. And eventually a agreement is put in place, subject to viability assessments, and a payment is made in cash or in kind. That accounts for nearly 50% of all affordable housing units delivered in, in England per year. The issue with that is alongside having the, those uh, units delivered, local authority can put conditions on them, e.g. the shared ownership units uh, need to be there in perpetuity. You can't, after a set period of time, simply sell off the, the social rent units and convert them into another tenure. So when it comes to housing association right to buy, if those covenants in place, it can't supersede. So one of the really interesting parts of the pilot that was rolled out was to attempt something known as portability. So if you lived in one of these properties that had a covenant on it that meant that the individual couldn't purchase it, they could apply their discount to another property. Uh, it didn't prove very popular because one of the main selling points on right to buy is that you get to buy the house that you're living in. So you don't need to move. If you love the area, if you love your neighbours and the community, nothing gets uprooted. Um, only 12% of purchases via portability went through under the pilot compared to around 67% uh, of standard purchases. Um, so all in all, there was about £200 million of government funding set aside for the pilot. Um, the Both the National Audit Office report into it and actually the the government commissioned pilot into it weren't overly infusive in their praise of the success of the pilot. Um, not saying it was complete failure, there's some really interesting elements to come out of it, and I would strongly recommend people find the report and read it for themselves, particularly in the current context, because it highlights a number of the complexities and issues facing um, housing associations, um, particularly on replacement of stock, which is always the main problem with uh, right to buy. The, the key elements of that pilot are effectively what are being reintroduced by the announcement from government, um, but they haven't sold any of the main issues, such as funding the market difference, how we're going to do portability in a practical manner, 
how are we going to replace the units? Are they going to be on a like-for-like basis? Are they going to be one-for-one at an overall national level? Because that was the focus of the pilot. So if you have a housing crisis in real housing demand in Bexley, yes, from an overall accounting point of view, if you can replace the five units lost there in Blackpool, that, that tallies. But you're not keeping the right type of stock in the right areas that need it. And that is a real issue with right to buy is that you take away an important element of the housing market, goes to private ownership. And if we look at what has happened in council right to buy, anywhere between a quarter to one third of all right to buy properties are now in the private rented sector. Typically, they are going to people who are claiming local housing allowance, aka housing benefit for the private sector. So from a taxpayer point of view, you get hit basically three times because you, you don't get to extract the full value of the asset to, re, to recycle the, the, the cash involved. You then end up having a unit shift in sectors, making an individual a lot of money, but you're then paying for it because you're paying out at higher levels of housing benefit than you otherwise would if that person had remained in uh, the, the social housing sector. Going back to one of the, the elements I mentioned earlier and one of the real problems that we have in the new iteration, the, the voluntary right to buy pilot expressly excluded housing associations that owned 1,000 units or less. It doesn't appear to be the same exclusion applied to the re-announced policy. The smaller you are as a, an organisation, the less assets you have to leverage in order to develop. As I mentioned earlier, 82% of the sector less than a thousand units so again if you're trying to replace these assets if you only have 500 units you probably don't have a development program you probably don't have a development team the way that you acquire units would be through section 106 or partnership arrangements with similar uh, organizations uh, within your local area so you, you you have a real problem in terms of how you fund these replacements indeed in the pilot four out of 10 of the organisations said they were going to be putting in their own funds to make up the difference because the money that they got back, they couldn't then use to build new stock. Um, so you'd have a double whammy for these smaller organisations who can't sweat their, their assets in the way that larger ones might be able to, don't have a development programme, so you don't have ready-made teams available to kind of build these units, and they're actually having to dig into their cash reserves in order simply to tread water. Um, again, none of these issues were properly addressed or, or ironed out as a result of the, the, the previous pilot, which is why it politically got kicked into the long grass under Theresa May, um, only to be brought back um, at a time when the government was trying to re-own the news cycle. So again, long ramble, hopefully covered the, 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 the main and key elements of it, but it, it's kind of quite a complex journey that's gone through not to kind of further put a spanner in the works but actually there's already a way you can purchase your housing association property through something called right to acquire which was a much more limited um, and kind of less successful cousin of right to buy which was applied to housing association stock back in the day so in my in my note taking i've got a big a big set of questions that again i'm sure if i if we went through we could be here for hours um, which yeah, I'm sure is fine by us, but for people listening, they might not appreciate that that much. Um, what I'm thinking, there was a couple of things. Number one, it'd be good to uh, uh, go on a couple of these sort of directions, maybe in separate episodes. I think that might be very useful, uh, very pragmatic, I think. Um, if you can, in, in a minute, uh, literally in 60 seconds, if you were, if you had 
reins of the government now and it was you know you're in charge how would you propose and again it'll give you about a minute for this because we're hitting that sweet spot of podcast type in 60 seconds how would you sort this challenge out personally i would scrap it um i don't see any workable way of ensuring uh, like for like or one for one replacement which is the central issue with right to buy um, we at the moment need to build 90,000 new social housing units per annum for the next decade just to meet with demand. We are seeing intense pressure in the private rented sector and home ownership sectors, which is driving a housing bubble, which is not going to remain affordable for the long period of time. One of the best ways government can address this is to increase the volume of social housing unit to take the stress out of the private rented sector and enable it to breathe. Um, so in short, I would scrap it. But at the very least, radically rethink how we can increase social housing uh, provision within the UK. So in order that you come out with a net positive change. Sounds good to me. I could I could get on the back of that. That sounds that sounds good to me. Uh, I, I, again, what I think we should do is we can go off into a, a multitude of subjects, planning how local councils can you know affect or facilitate things like that. I just want to say a big thank you because I. I, I I'm sure people listening to this have learned a lot. I've definitely learned a lot from listening to you for the last half an hour. So thank you. If people want to get in touch with you or find you, how do they do that? See, this is where I should have remembered what my Twitter handle is, because I use it all the time, but I don't actually remember what it is. Um, I think if you search Neil Goodrich Housing in in your um, search engine of choice, I will turn up. Um, It's an unusual name. And particularly on Twitter, I am quite vocal. Um, I think if you want to understand more about some of the issues facing social housing, uh, getting a subscription to Inside Housing, I'm not I'm not paid from them to do that, but they are an incredibly good trade sector magazine. Uh, Same for HQN, which is the Housing Quality Network. They are two really good sources of information. And Vicky Spratt as well, who is a journalist for the I, I believe, or potentially the Independent, can never remember which, uh, is uh, recently um, written a very good book on being a council housing tenant. And finally, Municipal Dreams is an incredible story, uh, love note, um, and uh, kind of ode to council housing that goes through the development of uh, council housing into its modern day um, context. A really good book, probably one of my favourite books on uh, social housing that's been written. My, my wife has just sneakily handed me my hand, my uh, Twitter handle. So if you want to follow me, it's N Goodrich HSG. Um, so Neil Goodrich Housing, but N Goodrich HSG is my Twitter handle. I think I had your Twitter handle ready to go just in case you didn't know Perfect. what it was. So that's fine. Uh, Neil, I appreciate that. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, we will, I think we'll get together again and go through a couple more episodes on, on subject matters that are related to what you've just discussed, but also branching off because it will give a much fairer representation as well. Apart from that, a massive thank you for your time. Thank you for the history lesson and look forward to chatting again soon. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it.